Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the Collect and Spec podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Zakiel, otherwise known as Merfolk Magic Online. And with me, as always, is Chris, otherwise known as Wolf of Tin Street. How's it going? It's going all right. Zakiel, how's your week been going for you? It's been going all right. It's been going all right. Uh, I'm excited. And I will actually have you introduce this week's special guest. Go for it. So this week, we've got Jim, otherwise known as the handle MTG Papa, joining us this week to discuss MTG Finance with us. Hey, what's up? Hey, hey, hey. Thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. No problem. Glad to be here. (laughs) I'm just going to hop right into it because I I know just because I know you a little bit, you have quite the, the history with magic. I mean, you you grew up with magic, isn't that right? Like from the beginning of magic, you you were playing and starting along from the very beginning, right? Well, there's always someone that started before you, right? Like there's <laughs> never the absolute very first. But yeah, I would say I'm relative to people that are still playing today. I'm one of the, the early ones. I, I discovered this game in winter of 94 when some of my friends who love D&D started, started getting a hold of these, these packs of playing cards and um, we were playing on concrete floors and opening up i think the first packs i opened were antiquities i remember when legends came out that was a huge huge thing and no one could get any legends but we got a hold of some packs we knew some people that had pre-ordered a few boxes stuff like that yeah it's 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 crazy to think today of of where i was so long ago but yeah i played with a bunch of friends back then long 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 time ago yeah i'm curious too because i know there were a ton of like trading card games in in the 90s mostly from what you've told me so i can, you know i got to got to well they all right spawned they all spawned from magic magic was the really? first trading card game and everything kind of came from them other companies saw their success and wanted to jump in wizards itself tried to become a trading cards a, a multiple trading card game platform almost they had they had pokemon they had they had robo rally they had a bunch of other cards. Spellbook? I'm not sure if that came from them or not. But there was a bunch of big popular ones that came out in the early to mid-90s trying to replicate the success of Magic. There was Star Trek. There was Lord of the, Fi- Lord of the Rings. Or Lord of the-, Lord of the Five Rings. I forget the exact phrase for it. But I always liked Magic. I just I stuck with that. Some of my friends tried to get into Jihad or get into Illuminati, which today sounds kind of bad <laughs> but back then i mean demonic tutor and unholy strength were big things because people were like what unholy strength doesn't have the crucifix on anymore this sucks i'm not playing this game anymore They're too uh, whitewashed you know yeah i remember the backlash from all the the religious people that didn't want these satan worshipers playing games in their in their living rooms and yeah it's a it's it's definitely grown a bit and there's a lot almost all of those games have all died off i'm i'm I was shocked to see Pokemon resurge, and I'm surprised that Yu-Gi-Oh hold, held on that long. But I guess there are the other two out there that are actually still around. It's interesting. Now, uh, when you started playing, you mentioned 94. Did you play? Have you been playing like every year since then, or or what was that? Uh, what was that playing? Yeah, like, I think continuity? I think my story is similar to most people, where they picked it up early when they were a teenager. They played it for a while, and they put it down for a while, and then picked it up later in life. And that's kind of how my story goes. I played a lot during the 90s. I think around the end of the 90s, I was getting a little bit, I was moving away from it as I became, I turned into 18, 19, 20 year old and kind of discovered more important things in life or at least more interesting things. And a lot of my friends, you know, that I that I grew up with playing, kind of we had moved away and I'd gone off to college and I'd, I'd moved on to different friends and different 
different social things. And so there was a big break for me between probably, I think Urza's Destiny was the last set that I actually bought packs and opened them until Theros. So there's a huge gap, maybe 13, 14 mm -hmm. years there that I yeah. basically threw all my stuff into a closet and didn't really think about it very much. I did play Magic Online a little bit in between because that I could play That allowed me to play with people without having to have friends that had cards. You know, you could yeah, just go online yeah. and find people. Mm -hmm. So I do have a lot of the cards from that era on my Magic Online account of the, the, the 2000 era, I guess. But, but yeah, the paper, paper collecting kind of was put on hold for a decade, decade and a half or so. Yeah, something else that's like very interesting for me, because I know you, you, you work in IT and I know you have a, a coding background. So Uh, it's really fascinating for me to see somebody who kind of not only like was playing Magic from the beginning, but also seeing like the, I, I guess, the secondary market around it and how tech was involved with that. And I know you've mentioned a couple of times there were these these weird forms of early auctions in the 90s on these websites. Could you give us like a brief rundown of that? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's actually quite interesting to think about how the market looks today and what it looked like back then. To back up a little further, I I, uh, I actually have like a collecting DNA, I think, in my in my blood because people in my family have been collecting all sorts of things for a hundred plus years. My grandfather has a collection of coins and stamps that dates back for forever. And in the 80s, he tried to get me a little interested in it. He was nearing the end of his life. He died in the 90s. But in the 80s, he would sit me down and show me stuff. And, and I'd tell him I was interested in, in other collectibles and sports cards and stuff like that. And so we kind of shared this little, you know, we, we'd go out to the, uh, the stamp and coin type places that also had baseball cards and collect stuff and buy packs and stuff like that. So I kind of had a grasp on the idea of collecting when magic came out and that was kind of my angle when all my friends were playing they were like play this trading card game and i was like is it collectible and they're like yes it's a collectible game i was like great i'm in it so i <laughs> early on i kind of learned you know these cards had value and people were willing to give me cards for for a certain price that i could then sell to someone else and this was magic and the internet the web i guess kind of kind of came out hand in hand i don't know if a lot of people know this but The first web browsers came out in 92, 93, mm -hmm. 91 technically, but they really didn't catch hold until 92, 93. And people used, as soon as Magic came out, it was an online phenomenon as well. It was There were um, people chatting about it in chat rooms, in bulletin boards, stuff like that. And I, I quickly found, as I discovered the internet in 93, 94, that I could reach out and find people that were willing to pay a lot more for let's say dual lands or legends cards and antiquities cards, Arabian Nights cards that I could find locally for two or three bucks and then find someone online to pay me five to 10 bucks for them. So I actually started running auctions. We, the old way we would do auctions is you'd, you'd post a listing, like similar to a Reddit post. You would just have this lengthy post of all the cards you're selling and then everyone would email you. There was no, it was too complicated for everyone to just reply. <laughs> so they would email you directly their, their silent bids and you'd update the prices and 12 hours later you'd repost with the, the new lowest bids on everything. And you do this multiple times over the course of a couple days. And at the end, you know, you'd say this is a three-day, four-day, five-day auction or whatever. And at the end, you just, you know, publish the results. Here's all the winners and stuff. It wasn't a per-card auction because that wasn't, you know, feasible. It's just mm -hmm. there's so much time and effort. I would do like 80 to 100 cards at once. And you'd also get a lot more eyeballs on your post if you had a bunch of cards because people would go through it and figure out what they wanted. So I was actually selling a lot of cards. I, I found an old, an old posting that I had. I probably ran... 
couple dozen auctions, but I, you know, all that is is somewhere in the history of the internet that I can't dig up. I did find some paper copies I had printed out of my auctions, and and there's stuff on there that it would just blow your mind at how little it was selling for. I had I had six Library of Alexandrias that went for thirty bucks each. I probably oh, picked no. them up for you know ten to fifteen each, so I was happy about <laughs> that. I had a beta. Bayou that I sold for $17 because that was only $10 to me and I was making 70% return on it. So <laughs> I had, you know, hun- uh, dozens and dozens of dual lands selling between five and $10. They were easy five to $10 flips. I could buy them locally for two or three bucks from people, put it online and double my money. So in total, I probably from, from a hundred card auction, I'd bring in about 500 bucks. And then that would have cost me about 250. So I was making great money. I really wish I, I had kept the cards instead of the money now. But you know, there's, there's <laughs> yeah. so many things in there that, you know, we, uh, I, I, I learned early on that you can buy cards and sell them right away and make this great return based on differences in the market. And so that's what kind of drew me into the game, even though my friends, as we all got older, they tended to not want to play so much and didn't see the long term value of their cards. So they kind of gave them to me as, as the collector or they sold them to me for, you know, whatever we, we agreed was a, a fair enough price at the time. So I still have a few of those. But uh, yeah, I, I remember handling so many cards. But the, the interesting thing, I think, is that that there was a lot of cards that we just didn't see or touch very much. And that was mostly the Power 9. Like, it was hard to get a hold of those. It was hard to find them. And, and when you did, it was like 50 to to $100 for a card. And so that was just insane prices. And nobody really wanted to deal with that. I guess at my level as a teenager, we didn't have that kind of money to just throw yeah. at cardboard. How much longer after release did people start to realize that the, the difference in rarity is like, oh, power is actually like worth a premium? How much was that it was, like? That was yeah, within weeks. So, oh, okay. so Alpha came out. I'm trying to remember exactly. It's either June or July of 93. And Beta came out a few months after that. But between the two, people had figured out there's a rarity difference. You know, like it didn't last long. It was cool, I think, in the beginning. I, I hadn't joined at this time. Um, I, I came along a few months after. But from what I've talked to people and read and stuff like that, generally people understood there was a rarity difference within the first few months. And it was widely known. Like nobody I played with in, you know, early 94 had any qualms about rarity of cards. We did think that, you know, a crawworm was was awesome and so you might be able to trade someone a crawworm for a dual land. <laughs> but we understood the dual land was rare. We didn't we didn't trick ourselves into thinking that, you know, it was common. We we knew mm-hmm. it wasn't easy to get, but then again, rarity didn't matter so much if the power of the card wasn't so great, you know? Like mm-hmm. So rarity was definitely understood, but it wasn't um I guess the importance of it wasn't really really focused on, I guess, until at least for me, until a little bit later in life. We knew that Shiv and Dragons were rare, and that was probably the one of the best cards. Shiv and Dragons, Force of Natures, those things were so much more. Lord of the Pit was one of the big ones that everybody wanted. And, I don't know, I, I, these old cards today, that I see them, and I feel so bad for these, for these cards that we treasured so much as kids, but because they're just not that great anymore. It's like, who wants a beat up old revised Shivan? Now, maybe you can <laughs> find a collector willing to pay you five bucks, but you could get 20 bucks for that, you know, a long time ago to, to somebody that was like, I'm desperate. I need another Shivan for my, for my deck. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's rarity was known. I, I do know that there were alpha cards thrown away in the first, the first release, <laughs> like the stories of people, cause they gave out these alpha decks at Gen Con. They just, 
gave them to people. They were trying to get their products into hands. And so people would go up to their booth at Gen Con, uh, to the Wizard of the Coast booth, and they'd say, here, have a deck of magic. We'll show you how to play. And they'd give them an alpha deck and they'd sit down and play a few games. And some people would be like, hmm, oh, interesting. Okay. And then they'd just walk out of the convention, throw it in the dumpster and throw it in the trash on the way out. So there, there is verified stories of people just tossing out alpha decks, alpha, a stack of alpha cards in the garbage because, eh, whatever. It's some throwaway game I got for free. Didn't, didn't interest me too much. Oh, man. Was it because of those early auctions? Because, I mean, you've mentioned that there were all these other TCGs now. Was it because of at the time that you were able to run these like these auctions that allowed you or let you like just convinced you that magic was going to be like the one that continued to grow and continue to be of value while the other ones were kind of like phases or? Well, magic was always the number one head and shoulders above the rest. There was never any serious competition to unseat it. I would say at the peak, a couple other trading card games got within got within 10 to 20% of Magic's total market. You know, enough people played them. And I'm sure there's pockets of people in the country that said, Magic, we're not going to play that. Let's sit down and play Star Trek, you know, um, <laughs> which, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. I mean, there was people that were gung-ho about it. I had some friends that were hardcore gamers, hardcore D&D people. And when the last, uh, Jihad had a couple different names, but it was Jihad, it was it was Vampire, The Masquerade. It was these other names that they gave to it. But basically this kind of vampire-esque like world of trading cards. And people were really into that in 94, 95, at least in my local group. And I remember them going, oh, I'll trade you, you know, all my magic cards for all to get a bunch of this new, this new vampire game. And I was like, okay, guys, I didn't see the long-term thing of it. But gamers are gamers. They just pick up whatever and they don't really... A lot of my friends didn't care about the collectability, about the tradability, about the the value of their cards. You know, they kind of saw that side of the market as not involving them, like kind of dirtying the ex- the gaming experience if you consider yeah. it to have value. And so I was kind of, you know, a lot. You you, you hid the fact that you're actually early spec, not speculator, but it's you're trying to make a business out of it. You know, trying to, to yeah. grind. You you really wanted to hide that because people they called him Mister Suitcase, and it was this persona that you would have a suitcase full of of cards and you'd sit down and just just rip everybody off as much as you could. And so you didn't want that persona to be tied to you when you met new people because they would just instantly treat you badly. They'd try to they'd give you bad trades, you know, on purpose because they thought that you were trying to take advantage of them. They would not trade with you. They'd prefer to do a bad trade with someone else over a good trade with you because they felt that's the way to get back at you for ruining this game by causing it to have value. So I, I tried to hide that as much as I could. My friends knew that I was buying their buying cards from others <laughs> and selling them online, yeah. but I'd never tell a stranger that I met at a local gaming shop, hey, I can get double this online. I'm going to buy it from you and go sell it. Like They thought that I was just trading for their cards or desperate enough to actually pay them cash for it. And I mean, this was, I was so small time at the time, you know, like if I had 20 bucks in my wallet, I felt rich, you know, like <laughs> I was not walking around with stacks of hundreds buying, buying everything from everybody. I was like, I'll trade you my, my random you know, two rares for that dual land that you don't really use and you don't want. And they're like, well, okay, because I can't really use this. And, you know, we all understood that the Scry magazine had a value, but nobody could really get that value. Um, but I felt like I had, because I had used the internet earlier than most, even my friends didn't really use the internet that much. I felt that I had this this competitive advantage. I could find a market for their cards that was vastly higher than what they could find locally. And so I kind of used that to my advantage to finance my teenage years. It's it's funny because I think that 
that emotion from folks against the suitcase grinder still exists. But it's fascinating to me too, as well, because I mean, you talk about nobody using the internet. And I I remember hearing this when I started playing, which was coincidentally also uh, 2013, but the, the idea of net decking. <laughs> Yeah, the, that was that was a big no-no in the '90s. Like that was a that was a severe that was a faux pas that that you just didn't do. Like you came up with original decks. If you won a tournament, it was because you came up with a good deck on your own. If you won a tournament with a deck that you you know borrowed from someone else, borrowed the concepts and the ideas, people felt like you didn't really win that tournament. That you were cheating in a way because you weren't using an original creation. That was kind of born into the game like you could copy someone else's style and try to modify it that was fine but taking someone's tune deck and just copying it you know 100 percent card for card like that was that was one of the ultimate like you're not a respectable player you know <laughs> it's so. weird to me because i mean if there's if they were willing to pay 30 dollars for a card that means a lot of people were, were still going after those cards so how do you how do you justify paying that price tag on cards if you're not in some degree copying other people's deck lists, right? That, that well, yeah, that's, that's why I had to find the internet, right? Because for every, every hundred players out there that were like morally against copying someone else's deck or, or whatnot, there was one or two that were, you know, like, I'll take what, it, you know, I'll do what it takes to win. I'll, I'll put <laughs> the money down for the good cards. And that's why, you know, when you have the internet, you have access to the entire world. And so people would go online to, there was definitely decks people would post online look at this deck and that's i mean that's the term net decking came from you go on the net and you get a deck and so people that were already on the net looking for decks would also look for the cards for those decks and voila i had the dual lands they needed for that deck for example you know so that's where you found the customers and that's where you got the where the customers were generated from mostly like it implies if you net deck that you have to have internet access but you know in the early years in 94 95 93 mm-hmm. like a f- small fraction of the people actually use the internet. You know, the small fraction of the players, I would say less than 20% in 94 and probably less than 30% yeah. in 95 actually mm-hmm. were denizens of the internet. You know, I mean, this was still back when AOL was was excited about getting 20 million people in the US online. Like, but, <laughs> you know, that's, that, was, that was rookie numbers to today, you know, like, but it was, uh, it was a different time when when you felt like yeah. you had access to this whole cyberspace that most people didn't know about or didn't want to put in the energy to find out about, it gave you an advantage. I know during that time as well, I think, was it Scry Magazine was also a pricing guy that was pretty popular? Or maybe that was a little bit later? Scry came out, I don't want to be exactly wrong, but I remember it coming out early on. Duelist actually was before Scry. Scry came out, I'm guessing 95, could have been 94, but I think 95. Um, but yeah, they were really the first the first pricing magazine and they focused mainly on magic cards and other collectible cards, you know, because there was lots of games at the time, so they would list other cards. But, you know, their, their bread and butter was magic. And Scry, I think I still have some early Scry's. Scry magazines. There was another one I, I can't remember right now, but it was also it came a little bit after Scry. Yeah, the name escapes me right now. Maybe you guys have heard it. You probably have heard of it, but uh, yeah, the the prices in there were were often today. We look at them and go, "What? There's no way." And back then, I remember looking <laughs> at them going, "Nah, there's like no way." On the other end of that, like, who would pay a hundred dollars for a Black Lotus? That's insane. <laughs> yeah, that is not worth a hundred dollars. There's no way. So yeah, yeah, it was it was interesting how people got their information because they would look at these magazines that were months months behind the times. So prices didn't move that quickly. It was pretty. It was easy to reliably get get certain prices on cards even months after 
they've become more popular. You know, like the prices really didn't shift that fast. Definitely feels like a transition to to what it is nowadays. So when you came back in in 2013, which it, it feels weird because when you describe like the like these early age options to me, because obviously before my time that feels like a, an age ago versus you come back to to doing like being involved with MTG Finance in 2013. How did that kind of compare with the the experience you had earlier on? Well, I mean, it wasn't like this light switch that turned off and then turned back on. To me, the internet's always really been closely tied to magic in a lot of ways. And I never stopped using the internet. So it wasn't like the marketplaces were totally new to me. I, I I signed up for eBay in the 90s, and I've always had that account. I used it for different things. When I stopped playing Magic, I was selling all sorts of other things on eBay. Not that I wasn't a big eBay seller or anything, but everything was still there. So when I came back in 20, 2013 or so, I kind of I was still familiar with a lot of the stuff. TCG was a new thing, but the the marketplaces it wasn't too shocking. I, I understood how they all ran and what things were were mm-hmm. like, and you know it wasn't it wasn't like a brand new experience for me. As far as you're willing, what is your current position in MTG Finance? It can range from power seller to hobbyist and then uh, you know whatever you're willing to share. And then on top of that, what are your favorite platforms that you currently sell on? I mostly sell on TCG Player right now. I sell sometimes when there's something I really want to get rid of and it's hard to sell on TCG Player because of the uniqueness of it. I'll sell on eBay. But I've probably done in the last year... 10 eBay sales, which you know is nothing compared to what I've done on TCG Player. Over the last two years or so, I've been heavily into selling on TCG Player. Before that, I wasn't so much into selling. I was more into just collecting and accumulating. And I realized that the other side of that equation, I was leaving out if I didn't sell my cards. Because I'd see something, I'd go, oh, this is going to be worth a lot. I'd buy it. It would go up. And I'd be like, yay, I made a bunch of money. And then it would go down again. And I go, oh, crap, I should have sold it. Um, <laughs> which I think a lot of people that see this as a investment hobby, I think that's the other side they're missing is you really got to know when to sell it as well as when to buy it. And so I started doing that a little bit more. I travel a lot. So it's really hard for me to have a TCG player account just because you, you know, you've got to be able to sell stuff immediately. You've got to be able to ship it out within a day or two of it's being sold. You need to have access to all your cards, which is hard to do when you're flying around the world on planes. So it, I've been lucky in that the last few years I've lived in Canada and I've had pretty good access to mail, US mail at least, pretty regular access to it. So I can sell stuff from Canada, put it on into an envelope, ship it out, and it'll be you know in the US mail system within 24 to 48 hours which is unheard, like it was just impossible for me to do from Asia or from Europe or from the Middle East or these other places that I've been. But I do find that TCG Player is probably the easiest because the the time it takes to list stuff is so much less than eBay. The market, the potential market is so much bigger in terms of potential buyers out there for what you have. And something like magic cards that are commodity are just naturally naturally give uh, lend themselves well to a platform like TCG over eBay because everything's the same. You don't need a picture of 4X of whatever standard rare needs to be sold because, you know, near mint is near mint and LP is LP. It's not the exact card condition is not as important as the card itself being in the buyer's hands. So it's a lot easier when you can just list by number, basically which you can't really do on eBay. You have to throw up pictures. You've got to take, you got to spend time working on a description and setting all your different fields. And I know there's power tools out there for people, but I've never gotten deep into eBay as a platform for large amounts of of quantity being moved. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
as far as your like niche or strategy within MTG Finance, you know, what, what would you say your specialization is? I mean, I approach this as a hobby first. I know there's people that look at this as a business or at least as a way to make some passive income. I look at it as a hobby to keep me entertained while also I'm kind of financially minded. So I enjoy something that brings me, you know, uh, emotional pleasure as well as financial reward. Combining those two to me is is a... Uh, is key to my enjoyment of magic, knowing that I can not only do something I enjoy, but I can also make money from it. But I'm not looking at it as a, I need this income for this or that. I like to know that at any time I could just put my magic collection in the closet and continue with my life unchanged by that, basically. So I look at it mostly as a hobby. What I like, I found is easier to do from a hobby perspective and to buy and invest in things that are slow movers, slow gainers, not things that are roller coaster rides of spiking up and spiking down. And for that reason, I've actually moved much more heavily into sealed product in the last few years. I find that it's it's a lot easier to just buy it, put it away and not think about it for a few years, not worry that it's going to drastically go up or down in price. Because the worst feeling is when you buy something at a good price, you think it's going to appreciate, let's say 100% over five years, and suddenly it goes up 200% within six months. You know, you mm-hmm. feel this need that I need to get out of it right away because I've already attained my goal. And the longer I sit in this, the, the better the chances are that I'm going to lose that potential money. That doesn't really happen with Sealed so much. So that's kind of why I like it, is that you don't, you're not constantly managing your portfolio. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that's, that's what I don't like about single so much is it takes active, actually active management to maximize your returns where sealed doesn't really take that active of management. You got to know what you have, but you know, you can sit on it forever and it's, it's not going to suddenly lose a bunch of value. Mm -hmm. Before we deep dive into sealed, I know just kind of one of the things we were talking about precast and, and uh, just in general, like as people kind of progress into their quote unquote financier careers or whatnot, you start to become maybe the local guy in your area or a point of contact that, you know, collectors or players, you know, locally know, you know, how have you, I guess, is that the case for you? And then how have you been able to leverage being, you know, someone that people are aware of, uh, you know, for your business? Well, I mean, this goes back to when I first started out, right? Like I had this collecting and investment type perspective when I picked up the game, just from other hobbies, other other interests that that I had you know been exposed to and whatnot. So I became kind of known as the guy that you could go to to get some money on your cards, and the the guy that had the cards that you could you could buy from or you could trade from if uh, if you needed something. And I expanded that network through running my own tournaments and trying to get more involved with more players because I found that the more the more players I had exposure to the greater the chances are i'd find a great deal and be able to do a trade or or a buy or sell opportunity with them so i ran a few tournaments on my own early on i actually have some of the old forms and stuff from watsi who had they'd sent me all these these uh, player forms and stuff like that including a bunch of dci numbers that are still blank and i i don't know if they're worth anything but i got a huge stack of, of <laughs> unfilled out dci numbers that are six digits long and people are like "Ooh, a six digit dci number to me it was like yeah that's garbage you have to have a four digit if you're cool which actually they would send us a list of every single dci participant this is before people reliably had internet access so you could look it up online they had a database but they would just send everyone the full list of all players all known players and their dci numbers so that when a player walked in and said oh i'm already in the dci you could look up their name and find it which is kind of funny because there's a whole bunch of personal data there right (laughs) like you have everyone's first and last name plus their dci number anyways i looked through that and i i found a whole bunch of 
early players and different numbers for different people. And I was like, wow, this is, is a quite an interesting treasure trove of information that's been sitting in my closet for forever. Anyways, back to like how I found more opportunities. I actually started playing at the Wizard of the Coast Tournament Center down in Renton. It was an interesting thing. You'd have these people from all over Washington State coming there to play in their tournaments. And then they started, I think in 95, 96. I'm I'm sketchy on the dates right now. Anyways, they had the very first Pro Tours. And all you had to do was sign up for a tournament at the WotC headquarters. And if you placed high enough, they would give you plane tickets to go fly to whatever city to play in the Pro Tour. But I actually played in the first... I think three of the first five pro tours wow. uh, in 96 and i was started out in the junior league so i was with you know the john finkel and the, and the patrick chapin and and those people playing as a junior because i was under 18 and they would give us prize and scholarship money the last tour last pro tour i played in was was dallas and that was as a as a master they called it back then and i looked at my results i actually actually came in 108 which didn't even make day two at the time but i was I'm pretty proud now. Looking back at those results, I went, oh, wow, I actually I, I made the top 128 back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was a way to kind of expand my network and try to find more people. I did find that there was a lot more backpack grinders on that scene. Like the hotels in the evenings were filled with people trying to swap cards and get better deals from each other. It was kind of seen as a game of who had a better price knowledge and would know what a card was worth because looking it up on your phone or something like that, I mean, it wasn't even, you didn't have looking it up on your phone, but opening up a Scry magazine to try to find the price of a card and see if it was worth it was also considered kind of a a no-no. You know, if somebody sat down to do a trade with you and you get a bunch of cards out and they get a bunch of cards out and you're like, okay, does this look good? And they go, okay, hold on just a second. They whip out a scry. You're like, no, forget it. And you walk away right away <laughs> because that's that was just like a, well, you obviously had no idea what your cards are worth. I'm not going to I'm not going to try to trade you because it was kind of this honesty thing. Like these are worth this to me. These are worth that to you. If it's fair to both of us, let's do the trade. But today people don't. That's what frustrates me the most today is people trying to trying to get the last penny in a trade. You know, like I I just, I don't deal with trading anymore because of that, because every single person wants to compare values on whatever price, price website they have and say, oh, we're a dollar off in this hundred dollar deal. I can't do it. You've got to find something else for me. Or you're like, come on, like, (laughs) serious, like you're, you're going to, you're going to walk away from a huge deal because of two to 3% difference in price. Like that's nothing (laughs) like back, back in our day. But so that's kind of how I would try to get access to more people. And I found that it's just not worth it anymore. The amount of time it takes to invest in person-to-person trades or deals, my time is just, I've got too many other things pulling me in different directions in my life. So can't do it. That's why a TCG player is is my best route. Is it? I've even moved towards direct and the store your product offerings they have, which means I just send my collection off to TCG and then I just set whatever prices I want. And if they sell, TCG sends out the cards for me. If they don't, they sit in their warehouse forever. So it makes it really easy if I have a large number of cards and I don't know where I'm going to be next week to manage and sell my collections online. So it's really cool to see, honestly. I, I really, I think it's cool the way that TCG is is trying to, to kind of create new avenues of value for the consumers. It, it is it's nice to see effort. But knowing, because you mentioned this, you like those slow, steady gainers. So, I mean, you've mentioned that you, you've got this collection of clearly respectable size and aged cards and valued cards, but I know you definitely like to to play that the sealed game more often than others. And honestly, the way that I always thought of it is you're basically selling 
self-control and discipline by holding a sealed product for like six, seven, 10 years. But what was your entry into sealed? And honestly, I'm genuinely curious as to how did you, how did you scratch the itch to not open the sealed product? I think it comes down to just my personality. I've always been someone that hates losing money. I, I absolutely hate feeling like I've lost money. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people will see something that they want in general, like in, in the world that's available for sale in the consumer world and just throw their money at it and then not even think of what they could have spent that money on elsewhere. You know, like the opportunity cost is something that most people don't consider. So when I look at buying old sealed product and stuff like that, I, I can't bring myself to open it because I feel like there's no possible way I could ever get the same value out of this product that I put it. It's worth if I sold it as a sealed unit, you know, like there's just absolutely zero chance. I, mm-hmm. I look at it just totally dead logically. Like there's, there's nothing I get out of this if I open it. The, the, the enjoyment of cracking an old pack is, I guess I just don't get the same rush that a lot of people do. My rush comes from imagining, you know, the value of what's sitting in my closet and how much I put into it and how much I could turn around and sell it for right now. You know, when I when I throw a booster box into a package and send it off to someone and, you know, I may have bought it for 80, 90 bucks and I'm now selling it for 160 and, you know, maybe make a $40 return after after all the fees and shipping and all that's paid. That feeling of I just turned, you know, 90 bucks into 130 bucks. That to me is the rush, you know, like maybe it's a weird, greedy, like I feel kind of bad saying it, but the, the making money to me is what really, you know, gives me that endorphin rush knowing that I've been able to find a way to turn money into more money. Yeah, I, I guess I guess I'm morally bankrupt is what I'm saying. I don't have any pleasure in normal things that aren't money. But yeah, I like I like that kind of way of describing it. I'm I'm selling the experience of opening that to somebody else um, or to hold that to someone else. I think the very first sealed I ever bought and didn't decide to just crack and open was in 2013. Before that, you know, up and through the 90s, you know, if I bought product, I would open it. I, I remember the last big purchase I made was two or three boxes of Urza's Destiny. And I just sat on my dorm floor and just cracked every single pack. And was like, oh, this is so cool. All these Urza's Destiny cards. It was a $200 investment at the time. And I got a bunch of cards out of it. But if I had held on to those three boxes, like, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> So in 2013, I came across a collection. I was starting to snap up older cards and stuff. And I came across a collection that someone had, you know, unfortunately passed away and their widow was selling it off. And in that collection happened to be a sealed box of Mirage. And I offered I think, two, 250 at the time for it. And it was about reasonable and picked that up along with a bunch of power from them. I threw that in my closet and started thinking about sealed more and more. And then went along to, to buy a box of revised and, and buy some other really interesting stuff. I found an old Watsi employee that I knew through a friend that had a, a pack of beta. And I bought that off them six or seven years now since I bought that from them. But that's probably the, the my favorite piece of seal that I own now um, is a beta booster. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was pricey at the time. I think I paid somewhere close to 1300 bucks for it, but I I'm, I'm currently getting it graded and I'll put it on my shelf and, you know, I, I'll keep it. I won't let that go unless somebody comes up with an insane offer. But it's it's one of those things that you just you you like to think back on and go, oh, this is really cool. Anyway, so I started getting into sealed from that perspective, picking up more and more. 
And I mean, to be honest, and a lot of people are going to hate me for saying this, but I discovered Rudy in 2016 um, as he started his channel and started to listen to some of the concepts he was talking about and the things like Gambler's Premium, the things about sealed boxes always going up slowly over time, the return on investment over the long term. And a lot of it made sense to me. And I said, oh, this is, this is quite interesting. And I think that accelerated my purchasing. I started mm-hmm. buying a case or two of Cons of Tarkir and then pretty much from cons forward, I always got a case of the current set or so. And then certain specialty products I would pick up a lot more of because I saw their potential a lot more. I, I got a whole bunch of Conspiracy 2, a whole bunch of Battle Bond, these other sealed products that people, to me, it's the ones that people like to open. Those are the best ones. I got a whole bunch of Battle Bond because everyone loved to draft it. Everyone loved to open it and play it. And I was like, great. That means that <laughs> five to 10 years from now, Nostalgic. it's all going to be gone and everybody wants to open it and play it. You know, like those are the best products that people don't want to open because there's nothing exciting in it, like Dragon's Maze. You don't want to buy that because there is no value. There's no excitement from people cracking it open. You know, the the excitement factor is a huge part of the reason there's a premium over the EV. I'd argue maybe it's the it's the entire reason there's a premium over the expected value of the box is is just the excitement factor of opening it you know if you look at my box of mirage like yeah it could have what led in there you know something that's worth a few hundred bucks but like if you look at prices it's over a thousand dollars you can't find a box mirage for under a grand there's no way you can get even half that amount from a box like even if (laughs) you're the luckiest luck sack on earth you couldn't get half the value out of the box from opening it so you have to the value has to come from somewhere and it's that intangible value of excitement of opening i think that that really adds a lot to the premium on, on old sealed product. From like a, so I, I've been focusing a lot on sealed and it feels like because there's, I mean, essentially you could buy a, a box or a case of almost anything that's being printed, uh, like depending on the amount of capital you have. But how do you prioritize what you're purchasing? And and obviously as each set comes out, kind of that's that's a really straightforward way of doing it. But do you ever look back on older vintage product, just for example, right now, stronghold boxes seem to have a heavy movement for reasons that we'll probably get into shortly. But if you are going to take $1,000 or 5000 or whatever your number is, how do you decide to, are you, are you usually strictly buying from retail and then holding, or do you ever venture kind of into more vintage stuff? I mean, if you look at what I have, what I'm currently holding, the majority of it was bought at retail prices. Mm-hmm. I can kind of, like most people with the singles collection, I can divide my collection into vintage product bought at some future date and current product that you got directly from an LGS or a distributor from the manufacturer type of stuff. So I have, I'd say, 10 to 20 boxes that are vintage, that are things I picked up like way after they were out of print. But the vast majority, I've got hundreds of boxes that I picked up at retail or distributor pricing, basically, because it's hard to, it's hard to, I mean, you're just shooting yourself in the foot if you're paying retail when it comes out, you know, like (laughs) you've got the money to put down, you know, you can find a deal online, you can find somewhere to buy it for a bit under and for every, every $5 off that box you get, you multiply it out to 10 boxes, you've got, you know, uh, 50 bucks cheaper in, uh, you know, cost on your on your investment. So a lot of it is retail. Some of it, you know, I just went back and was like, oh, that looks like a good deal on a torment box. That looks like a good deal on a legions box. You know, stuff that stuff that pops up from time to time that you just feel interested in. I guess my vintage sealed is more nostalgic than profit driven. So I'll see a box for I think the I bought a dissension box for a few hundred bucks, two hundred, something like that, a year or two ago. And it was more like Oh, this is a really old box. I never really cracked Dissension before. You know, the cards are worth something, but I'm not buying this thinking that I'm gonna. It's gonna be a huge gainer over time. I'm buying it just so that I have 
I feel like a collector, you know? So there's that, that other aspect. There's the collector versus the speculator. And I think most of my vintage is more, much more heavily collector while my, the stuff that I bought at retail is much more speculative just because I feel like I got a good in and I hope for the, for the market to continue to give me anywhere from 5 to 15% return on those boxes every year that I hold them, which is great. Well, that's what you would expect out of a kind of an index fund anyway, right? Yeah, but an index fund would be far less interesting, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's the other thing is that, you know, when a, a sealed box that you're expecting 15% return on suddenly jumps up 50% in a month, you can decide, you know what, I think it's time to get out of part of my position so that I can free up some capital to buy some other stuff because, you know, it shouldn't grow this fast. That's, that's the other thing is you kind of have, it's easy to gauge when something is, is performing too well and it's time to sell than something that's performing average and, you know, just keep holding for the long term. A good example is, is Jumpstart. Like that stuff is performing way too well, you know, so anybody holding onto it should be selling it right now. Actually, nobody should be, if everyone is logical, nobody should be buying Sealed. it and nobody should be cracking it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there's a whole bunch of illogical players in the market. And so you can sell it for 200 bucks, even though it could fall as much as, you know, down to 150 in a week. We don't know. But, you know, they, there's a bunch of people that, that get that rush out of opening stuff and they want the newest and latest and greatest. And so you can get lucky with stuff like that. You know, I, I bought a, a number of boxes. I was I had a pretty good lucky in. I, I I bought somewhere near fifty boxes of Jumpstart in the seventy dollar range, but most of them never arrived because of the shortages. So mm-hmm. I was only able to get like one case of them in advance. And I quickly, when I saw the two hundred dollar price tag, quickly moved out of those because I was like, well, I can lock in some gains. I wish I could sell them all at this price, but I don't have them in my hand, so can't. But if those fall too much on release or on the second wave release, by the time I get them in my hands, I'm not going to try to try to scramble to get 20 bucks a, a box profit. I'm going to say, well, these are these are going in the closet for long term because so, of the, the unique makeup of them. And there's other other unique stuff about different seal that you can get today. So we've kind of touched on this a little bit already in that you you mentioned that you're looking for players to be kind of nostalgic for these sealed products before you you buy into it. But for me, because the way I've always operated off of it is I obviously I don't treat sealed the way that you do. I always try and buy it initially when a distributor makes the first announcement that this product will be they're selling it basically like 88, 87 bucks. And I want to buy it so that way I have it in hand that I can sell it or crack it and basically sell the the singles the moment that it releases, like the day of release, so I can really hit the demand high. But the way that you're kind of phrasing this and kind of thinking of it in a way longer term, you're you're waiting for people to basically crack it open and gauge their interest. So in, in being that patient, what indicates to you the best time to, to, to kind of buy in on a sealed product? Because I would imagine it would be different for like a standard set versus like a master set, simply because not only just the print runs, but the timing of it. Yeah, so the, the sealed market, I've really, I'd say I'd call myself a deep investor in the sealed market for about five years. And it's changed a lot in those five years. When I started, it was definitely more like along the lines you're saying, where I just, I'd try to buy it as early as possible and, hold, mm-hmm. you know, like get the best, lowest price. But I found over the years, there's a number of factors that make that not so great. Number one, you never really know the distributor pricing unless you have some inside information, which I don't always. I try to get as much as I collect as much as I can and pay attention to as much as I stand. But you never really know how much the distributor is paying for that product. Number Mm -hmm. two, you don't know how much they have and how much they're going to try to fire sell in the future. And this has burned me a number of times where I bought a large position 
you know, like six boxes or 12 boxes in something. And then, you know, six months later, it was $10 a box lower than that, which, you know, it hurts when you're $120 underwater on the, the, the stuff you bought mm-hmm. six months ago, because you feel like, well, if I just waited, I could have gotten it for a lot cheaper. Yeah. Plus, you don't know how well received it's going to be during spoiler season. You really, and that kind of touches on the other thing you said, you don't really know until people start playing with the cards, how much they love it. If it's a set that a lot of people get on board with, that brings a lot of people in, and they really, it ties to some cross-product thing like, you know, Innistrad did, where it really tied into that. I think back when it came out, it was the, the whole vampire, like, teenage like boy <laughs> vampire <laughs> media scene was out there. I forget the name yeah. of that stupid thing. But, uh, <laughs> like, that, that brought a lot of people in, and so they really enjoyed that. It was a good draft experience as well, but that kind of nostalgia is only really identifiable after it's been in people's hands for a little while. It's hard to gauge what people are going to feel about a product before they even open a pack. So, so guessing at that is, is a, you know, you're more wrong than right. You can guess, you can say, oh, this is, people are going to love this. And, and I kind of, I made that mistake in Battle for Zendikar. I was like, people love Zendikar. They absolutely love Zendikar. There's these, these hidden treasures or these expeditions now in Zendikar. This is going to be a $200 product as soon as it's out of print. And so I bought a couple of cases thinking this is great. And BFC tanked. The cards were worth crap. People didn't enjoy the drafting experience. It wasn't like going back to Zendikar. It didn't feel like the original Zendikar. You know, it didn't have that same nostalgia and the hidden, you know, the, the expeditions were really lackluster in a lot of people's minds. They just wanted to open it and sell it. Nobody wanted to open it and collect them or hold them. They're like, oh, it's a $100 card. I'm going to sell it right away. So BFC boxes didn't do that well. Now, in my initial reaction, now five years later, they did. They started going up a little bit faster than the other boxes from around that time. So, you know, that, that hasn't been a bad thing long term, but short term, it wasn't so great. I could have gotten more BFC boxes for the same price if I had waited to to mm-hmm. make my initial investment, you know. And I've kind of found that to be true over the years, that I'm more wrong than right uh, when it comes to predicting what's going to happen. And most of the time, there is a better price to get in than the pre-release price. And if there isn't, it's very rare that the, that you're hurting yourself that much by waiting six to 12 months. It's very rare that, the, the st- at least for standard products, that you're not buying, you're, you're going to lose a bunch of money by waiting to buy. Mm-hmm. Often you have a long, long chance to buy into your standard products. It's a little bit different with supplementary products, um, especially lately where they say, this is all we're going to print and then they sell a bunch and then everyone crosses their fingers and hopes it goes up because you know no more is coming out and hopefully everybody opened it. But I found that, that the best product, the way that you can identify what's going to do well is the things that people are going to want to open. You know, the things that people are, they're not going to think about sitting on sealed product. Nobody, I don't know why, I, I nobody really wanted to sit on their mystery boosters. Everyone wanted to open them because there was so much fun in it, you know. All the LGSs wanted to sell them, sell them, sell them because they didn't want to hold on to this product. But I found that was a that was a really good buying opportunity when people were just selling at undercutting each other trying to get rid of mystery booster boxes and stuff like that because i felt like okay people love opening this there's a huge number of cards in this there's you know you're buying into a mutual fund basically you're you're saying i'm going to invest in 1800 cards not in one card you know i'm going to put i'm going to spread my hundred dollars out and buy a box that could have any one of 1800 cards rather than just put a hundred dollars into a you know, a uh, monocrypt like, that, I, that someone mm-hmm. opened from a mystery booster box. Like, yeah, the monocrypt could do well, but it might do, not do well. And, you know, long term, 
what the chances that that $100 monocrypt is going to go to 200 versus $100 Mr. Booster going to 200 and, and I'm not even talking about the short-term random market and the fluctuations that have happened this year. I'm saying five years from now, if you, you don't look at the price, the current price, you just look at the, the price you paid for it, throw it in a closet for five years, and then pull it out and examine the price. What as as a rational person, do you think a mystery booster box that's selling for a hundred dollars today is going to be two hundred in five years? More likely than a monocrypt that you that someone pulled out of that. So if you just try to examine it from a totally emotionless, like what's the absolute value of this, that's, that'll help you out in terms of figuring out when to buy sealed. The other thing is you don't want to buy a sealed product that moves very little over two years, right? You. Because your money is locked up for two years, basically. Mm -hmm. This recently happened to me with Rivals of Ixalan. When Rivals came out, it was I was it was just after Ixalan, and I wasn't sinking too much into sealed at the time. So I think I bought a box or two, throwing it in the closet because I like to just get a box or two of everything just to just to have it. The worst is the regret of oh yeah, I decided to take a break from Magic for a month and not buy the product that came out, and now it's a five hundred dollar product that I could have got for fifty bucks, you know. So mm -hmm. I always buy a box or two, even if I'm not that interested. I can't actively manage stuff so much. So I had a box or two of rivals. And over the you know, the, the next two years, three years, it didn't really move that much. Most of the sealed boxes weren't moving that much. Sealed prices weren't that great. And then I noticed that it started to move. And, and there were some whispers, uh, I don't know, six months ago or so, maybe around the turn of 2019, 2020, around that last last winter sometime, that people started saying, hey, there, these rivals of Ixalan cards, people are you know playing them in EDH and the prices are seeing kind of crazy. There's $30 Mythics now and, and whatnot. And I go, hmm, that's that's interesting that people are finally starting to take notice of that set. And the eBay price started going up. I think it was $110, $120 for a box. And so I, I did a quick search and found that ABU still had you know, 30, 40, 50 boxes at 95 bucks a box. And I said, well, I guess it's time to move in. So I, I bought 30 boxes of Rivals at $95 and, and um, have been sitting on those ever since. But if I had put in, if I had bought them earlier, I would have paid 85 or so. I would have, so I, I basically paid $10 a box more. So I paid $300 more for these boxes, but I saved myself three years. To me, that was worth it because they only grew 10, 15% in those three years, which was, you know, 5% a year or whatever it was. And that money was better used, put, put mm -hmm. towards other things and, and turned into more money. You know, it's in the opportunity cost. Like I could put $5,000 into the sealed product today, but maybe two years from now when it's starting to rotate, I can still buy it for, you know, maybe $5,500 instead of the 5000 I could have bought it for many years ago. And would it be better for me to, to sink this money now or to sink it in the future at a slightly higher, higher amount? And I found okay. that, that waiting and seeing has often turned out better for me than to Gosh, jump before. Fun. It's not as much fun. <laughs> I mean, and there's definitely, there's there's things you can look for. Like I bought Jumpstart yeah. well before spoiler season because because of just the number of facts. I looked on it purely from the fundamentals of the product. Like we knew that Jumpstart had three, four, what was it? 500 reprints. We knew that it was a targeted at new players. So it wasn't intended to be a major product release. So I kind of felt like, okay, it's going to be underprinted or, or it's going to be not printed as heavily as most other sets. It's got a whole bunch of new cards, a whole bunch of reprinted playable, in theory, cards in it. They're not going to reprint a bunch of, you know, like, sorry to say, craw worms. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> like, they're going to reprint some playable stuff that people like, you know, as, as a way to get them to open it. And on top of it, so it felt in a lot of ways like a Masters-ish type set, lower print runs, lots of reprints, you know, odd 
packs, 20 cards in a pack, you know. Um, so the <laughs> things we knew about it were scarce. But when the prices came out, you know, MVP offered it at 72 bucks, $71 a box. And I was like, this is insane. No product has been this cheap. And so like, this is this is insanely cheap. I'm going to buy the maximum I can buy from them. And then, and then another company came along and shortly before pre-release season, they had another huge allotment of boxes to sell at, you know, I think it was $78, $79 a box. And I thought, okay, well, there's a chance that this product is only an $80 box, but there's also a chance that it's well over 100 So I'm going to put down my money now because I really don't see it falling further. I don't see it going from an $80 box to a $70 box. It doesn't, doesn't make sense in my mind. Mm-hmm. So I bought a whole bunch more from them, or at least put my order for a whole bunch more from them in. And that was all well before spoiler season. We knew of the product mix of mystery boosters well before it was released because of the convention edition. So that one I put a lot into during release because that was the only time I could have bought it. You couldn't pre-order that stuff. It was all, there was very little on the pre-order market. It was all LGSs once they had it in hand type stuff. And at least in my experience. And so I bought a lot during the release release weeks of that. And there was a lot of uncertainty in the market at that time. This is, if you remember, but this was during the initial, the world, the sky is falling panic of (laughs) COVID-19 of late Mm -hmm. February, early March, where people didn't know how this would impact people. They didn't know what was going to happen in the world. You know, there was tons of people that thought this was nothing, tons of people that thought this was the end of the world. And so there's all this uncertainty. The last thing a lot of people were thinking about was let's buy up all the mystery booster boxes. So a lot of stores just had them sitting in their shelves. They were like, we can't even we can't even open our store to the public right now because we don't know if it's safe or not. And so I went around and, and found a bunch of places that were willing to sell them online to me and ship them out to me. And that's how I, I got all those. It's a it's always a unique time when I buy stuff either pre-release or well or during the release. I like to try to to anticipate how well received the sealed product is going to be before I moved in. But, you know, if I had waited on Jumpstart, I wouldn't have any position now and I wouldn't want to buy a $200 box. I'd, I'd be hoping for it to drop to maybe 120 and try to buy some boxes there. But um, it's still, that would, I still would have stung for me to yeah. be buying a position at, at $50 a box above what I had the opportunity to buy them at. So I don't know. The other, the other thing about sealed, I don't know if this branches into it really well, is that it's changed into the collector booster boxes lately. The, the offering, this new product of collector booster boxes is very interesting to me because it doesn't take up as much space. Yes. I'm able to sink more money into it for a much smaller footprint and a much larger potential hit rate. You know what I mean? Like a typical $100 booster box, if you're lucky, there's going to be a $30, $40 card in there. And so people are willing to pay, you know, if you take an old booster box like Cons of Tarkir, you know, there's a couple cards in there, I think only the fetch lands right now, that are $20 plus. And you can sell that box for $150, $170, something like that. So there's a a little bit of a premium. There's a little bit of a, you know, I think some of that comes from nostalgia, but a lot of it is, well, there's some good cards you can get in this. So it's worth it. It's an old product. Sealed, if collector's boosters had existed back then, I think that they would easily be $400 boxes, four to $500 boxes if they were sold at the rates today, which is about $200 is what I try to target collector booster boxes at. So the the ratio is roughly the same, you know, slightly slightly under twice the, the cost. But the fact that you're dealing with much larger numbers, it's taking you less time to buy and sell it. It takes you less storage space. It takes you, you only have to find one person willing to buy your box of collector boosters versus two people to buy your, your box of standard sets to make the same money. So there's a bunch of reasons why it's like asset density. 
I'm not sure if you guys have heard this term before, but it's basically like the smaller space you can get a larger value into that returns the same amount, the more valuable that is to you. You know, mm-hmm. so the mm-hmm. the collector booster boxes are very interesting to me in that, and that, that I'd like to move into things that I can sink a few thousand in, and it only takes up one case on my shelf, rather than if I spent, you know, like <laughs> I've got all these boxes of Rivals of Ixalan, and they're just—it's a mountain of boxes. <laughs> it, it makes me happy because, like, you 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 talk about that. I thought I was being so bougie when I because I just started getting the collector boosters with Horror 21. And the, the thing that I loved the most about it was that I could fit, because I live in a one-bedroom apartment space, it's a premium, um, yeah. is that I could fit like six of them on a bookshelf wherein I could fit like maybe like four, two to four boxes prior. And I was like, oh, this is so much easier. And also I can hide them behind other things so I can forget about them because they're so small. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. And it, I mean, I, I think I think I've... I, again, that's un, unproven in the long term right now. Yeah, could be the collector boosters are not that they turn out they weren't that great. But I have a I have a feeling that they'll be better than standard boxes, and I'm uh, more interested in in putting more more of it in that direction right now. As far as asset density, I'm just I kind of I think about how I like to diversify my portfolio of collectibles, and, and similarly to what you're saying, having a footprint that is focused and narrow versus wide and not necessarily unfocused but like and as opposed to like investing in a single stock versus a mutual fund right if we were to take one reserve list box versus one you know or a hundred for example uh, you know ixalan boxes how do you approach that as far as you know valuation and, and like kind of portfolio performance just if, okay, put all we could instead of having ten thousand dollars of standard boxes, we could just put it into a reserve or pardon me, into a revised box. Now, how do you balance that? Because obviously, just strictly going into vintage product isn't necessarily the best idea, but it's also a form of leverage because supply is so scarce. Yeah, I think what you have to look at that as is risk versus return. The risk with vintage boxes is that they are so much more based on nostalgia and speculative buying than the more recent stuff in a lot of ways. Take a Fallen Empires box, right? You can find them for 200 250 now. But if you were to open it up, it's got $10 in cards, maybe 20 <laughs> Maybe if this reserve list craze goes nuts, you're going to have a $10 Lotus uh, Lotus Veil, I think it's called. Uh, or no, Rainbow Veil. You might have $50 in cards in a few months if this reserve list craze keeps going, which I don't think it will. But the problem with vintage is that you're it's hard to get a reliable 5 to 10% growth on that. It goes in spikes and waves. It's definitely, I, I, like to, I like to think of it in the same way you mentioned, which is to di- diversify and have some stuff there and some stuff, you know, one foot in the past and one put, foot in the modern era. Because, you know, the chances are likely that this reserve list, like, kind of focus will die out. In my mind, it's going to be sooner rather than later, but a lot of people are riding the hype and thinking that it's, you know, the sky's the limit and everything's going to be great. So when that happens, it's harder to find, you know, the the box price doesn't lose value so much, but it doesn't gain so much anymore. And it's hard to find a buyer when you do want to sell. The liquidity of a vintage box is so much less than the liquidity of a conspiracy to box, you know, like there's so many more people that can buy my modern master 17 box for 400 bucks than there are people that can buy my box of reserved or sorry, not reserved revised edition booster box for whatever, six, eight, 10,000, whatever it is. So it's just, it's a lot easier to get your money back out when you need it. Mm -hmm. But having that stuff 
that can really go up in value is that's why I say to me, the vintage stuff is a collectible thing more than a financial thing. Mm-hmm. And the the modern stuff is much more about the solid numbers. I don't feel particularly nostalgic about that, you know, one of my 50 boxes of modern of mystery booster sitting on my shelf, you know, like I could sell it. I don't have this, this feeling of loss, but if I was to sell one of my old boxes, I definitely feel lost. I'd feel like, Oh, I can't get rid of this. I can't, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a hard thing to do to let go of these old cards. Like I have a lot of dual lands, for example, and I, I made a big purchase in Tundra's a little while ago during kind of the lull of last year. And so I have like 30 revised hundreds and I sold four of them recently and it felt so bad <laughs> even though like it was it was a great reason to get rid of them i mm-hmm. uh, sending them off just hurt i was like oh, i'm putting these cards and even though i've got you know 25 more in my box <laughs> it was these you know, it, it's hard for me at least to detach myself from the older cards and the older booster boxes and it just hurts because i i feel like i'll never have that again i i i, I don't know I, that's why i think it's best to have both but it's if you're looking for a collectability like i really enjoy this and having it i say buy one or two boxes at a time buy old ones the oldest you can find the better you know the thing that holds value to you but if you're looking at it as i want to make money on sealed i don't know i I just can't do it on vintage stuff um (laughs) i mean i know it's worth more but i I can't let it go you know i can't Mm. i can't if someone came along and offered me twice the market rate for my box of mirage i would i would stutter and go i don't know man i'd never get it again you know like if that's just money in the bank i don't really need that i, I want to be able to look at this box i mean i've got a box of urza's legacy that uh, i picked up a few years ago and it hasn't moved much in price but it's also one of my the things i look at and go oh man i'm so glad i have this box now like it doesn't matter what someone would offer me i don't want to get rid of it mm-hmm. but that's not the same with with these boxes i've, I've invested you know, if I buy them in multiples and invest at the market or the, or the retail or, or wholesale price, that's when I'm okay with letting them go later at a good return. Mm-hmm. Yep. You mentioned the reserve list. Let's talk about the future of the hobby and have the reserve list conversation, right? What, what do you think the reserve list effect on the market is? Over, we've seen this frenzy over the past what three months. I mean, realistically, since the beginning of the year, but more focus within the last three months. And then, how do you think the situation or the existence of it itself develops over you know the next ten? So I'm I'm the type of collector investor. If I'm really looking to make money, I try to I try to predict what the market's not thinking about right now and move in that direction. I'm very contrarian. I think. Chris called me the other day that I, I like <laughs> to do what other people aren't doing. Yeah. And so it scares me a lot when I see huge movement into the reserve list. That really freaks me out because it makes me feel like there's not a lot of patient money being moved into it right now. Like what I like is when I own an asset or a collectible that has built growth or built the people holding that asset are patient with their money. They're not going to try to dump it to to get their money back on a whim. You know, and as more people buy into reserve list cards right now and push the prices up more and more, a larger percentage of the holders of those reserve cards are maybe not as financially sound, maybe more willing to to let it go at whatever price they feel. People have this this um, 
psychological barrier that I can't let it go for a loss, but I can't hold on to it if it's under under what I paid for, right? Mm-hmm. So what they'll do is they'll buy a $500 cradle and it'll jump up to a thousand and they'll go, yay, I made so much money. And then they'll creep down to 700 and they'll start getting worried. I'll go down to 600 and then they'll list it for 550 going, well, I locked in my 50 bucks, hopefully. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to lose money. They're, they're, they get really scared. But if you think about it, they paid $500 for a $550 card. Now they've already made 10%. Why not hold it for longer? But they're not in that mentality. They're like, I got to get my money out now before it's underwater, you know? And um, Mm -hmm. I think that's what a lot of people that are putting, I'm scared that's what a lot of people putting money into the reserve list cards now are in that when they see the market start to go down, they're going to panic sell. The exact same thing happened a couple of years ago. And people were buying all sorts of reserve cards that were going up and up and up and up. And then suddenly people wanted to buy those dried up and people wanted to turn around and sell and lock in their profits. And suddenly it all crashed again. And lots of people lost money because a $10 reserve list card that they bought for 20 that went up to 50 is now worth 15, you know, and so that scares a lot of people. And I'm not a big fan of, of putting money into that. I see it as the reserve of cards, reserve list cards I hold, I'm going to continue to hold because I look at it long term. I'm, I'm not looking to, to lock in the, the profits I have on them or panic sell before they go down too much or buy a lot more because I don't feel like today's prices are low compared to what they'll be in a year or two. You know, there's there's definitely some things that are lower today than they'll be in one year from now. But I think for every every one card, every one reserved list card that'll be worth more in 12 months, there are five if not 10 reserve list cards, it will be worth less in 12 months than they are right now. So I'm not confident enough in my ability to pick out the winners. And I think there's a lot of noise out there that it, it really scares me. I'm just not a huge fan of it. I, I don't think that it's going... Some people fear that the reserve list is going to go away someday in the future. I don't believe that's a, a fear that anyone should act on or a reasonable fear. It's a possibility, but it's not going to drive any of my any of my investment decisions besides beyond the 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 core ideas of diversification. You know, if if I had, let's say, let's just pick a number, I had a hundred thousand dollars in assets, I wouldn't put them all into dual lands. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I would definitely have maybe five or ten thousand dollars in dual lands, but I would have the other ninety percent in other other things, non-magic things, or even magic stuff that, you know, sealed product or um, modern cards or, you know, just just pick and choose different things around it's all about diversifying yourself. And I think the reserved list, a lot of the action going on right now is novice market participants. And I don't want to participate in a market that has a whole bunch of novices making decisions because that's that's just dangerous. That's like giving kids loaded guns, right? <laughs> you don't want to go hunting with a bunch of teenagers that it's the first time they've ha- held a hunting gun in their hand, right? <laughs> One other question I had just really quickly, as far as kind of just diversification and collectibles, are there any other things that you, you know, collect or are interested in outside of the kind of trading card game market? I don't really. I just don't have time. I found that that my time is very, there's a lot of demands on it. I have a couple kids. I've got a wife. I move a hell of a lot. We didn't really talk about this too much, but I basically change the country I'm in every two or three years. And the amount of things, just daily life things that happen to maintain that lifestyle and the opportunities there, you know, to do things that are really cool are just too much to have many hobbies. I do have collections of other things that I've had over the years or that have been passed down to me or whatnot. So I have a, I'm currently caretaking a very large coin stamp collection that my family is entrusted to me because nobody's interested in collectibles 
and the, my, like I mentioned earlier, my grandfather, who originally had them, um, passed 20, 25 years ago or so, and they just don't know what to do with it. So I'm trying to right now manage, I'm learning a whole bunch about coins and stamps so that I can liquidate this. It's very sizable. It's, I, I counted it out the a few years ago. I went through it and just got the gold and silver value. Like if, if you were to burn all the stamps and melt all the gold and silver and all you could get out was precious metals, it was like 100 pounds of silver and over a pound of gold, which I mean, a pound of gold is right now $40,000, $50,000. And this is this is assuming there's absolutely zero collectability in these items, which which is a, a bad assumption because a lot of them have collectability. Now, precious mm. metal coins don't have too much of a premium over their melt value, but that just gives you an idea of the number of things in this in this massive collection that I have to kind of wrap <laughs> my head around and learn a bunch about. I mean, I've got other... I have a whole bunch of baseball cards back from the years, but they're all really old that I mean, they're all 80s, which was kind of a boom <laughs> of baseball cards. So they're, they're old, but not worth anything because everybody mm-hmm. has 80s baseball cards and random things I've picked up over the years. But magic is really the main the main collectible hobby that I have right now. I don't have time even for, for things like video games. I wish I did. I think I've played one, one video game and gotten really involved in a video game in the last four or five years. But when I was a kid, I loved video games. As a teenager, I'd play my my Nintendo all the time and Zelda and Mario Brothers and all sorts of stuff. But you know, those are those are hobbies and stuff that I just don't have time for anymore. It's I, I feel bad because I love I love doing lots of things, but I, I just don't have infinite time <laughs> in the universe. Yeah. So a bit of a, a cheeky question, but I, I like to hear from pretty much everyone that that we have on is where do you see the future of magic going in the next five years and, and to just kind of advance on that where where do you see it playing into your life in the next five to ten years i think where magic is at in five years is more dependent on what happens in 2020 than what happened in 2019 2018 2017 i think this year is probably going to be of the last considering the last five years the most influential for the mid to long-term future of magic. So it's hard to know exactly where it's going to be because I think this year is going to have the largest impact. It's like if you ask someone a month after 9-11, where do you see the airline industry in five years? It's like uh, <laughs> there's there's so many unknowns. There's so many first time this has ever happened type things that mm-hmm. you can't really predict what it's going to be like. You can... I, I think that's probably the, the cop-out answer. It's the safest one to say, we don't know because this year is so crazy. But if it wasn't for this year, I would say that five years from now, there's a good chance that, you know, if, if they kept an even hand on the tiller and, you know, guided the ship of Watsi through rough water, waters as they've done over the last 20 years, it looks, it's a pretty rosy outlook. I mean, more new sets coming out, more players getting involved, you know, the, the digital world kind of giving people a... Um, bringing the product to more people that want to pick it up in paper. I, I, I would be fairly optimistic about it if it wasn't for this year. Mm-hmm. If you take this year into account, I don't know where it's going to be in five years. I could see a future where we have half the number of players we have today. I could see a future where you know the prices on everything across the board is cut by 50%. I could see a huge downturn in the next five years based on how people's desires and behaviors and what they feel is important just shifted. I don't think that the, the unexpected changes are finished. I think that the world hasn't 
fully grasp the reality we're living with now. I think that a lot of people are still like, oh, the worst is behind us, but I don't think that's true. I'm, I'm very, I guess that comes back to my contrarian viewpoint or <laughs> pessimistic viewpoint of the, the worst is yet to come and the biggest impacts are yet to come. And so to me, you know, I'm not betting on it. I'm not like, I'm not saying that's it. I'm, I'm out of everything. I'm cautiously, I wouldn't say even say optimistic or pessimistic. I, I'm I'm right in the middle. I'm cautious about it. I'm continuing to manage what I have. And, you know, I think I'm going to slow down some of the buying that I do and focus more on selling the things that I that I feel don't has, have as much long-term potential, but holding on to all of my old vintage stuff. I think that's that's where, where I see myself moving in the next few years is kind of focusing on reducing the size of my collection and increasing the density as mm-hmm. I to touch on that that term I used before, increasing the density by you know holding on to the five hundred dollar plus cards and selling everything under that, or uh, you know holding on to the really high end expensive sealed product that I have and trying to reduce down to one or two boxes of the cheaper stuff so that so that I have like easier time moving this stuff. Like it's it's not easy. Part of the reason that I started in 2013 was that I changed basically my lifestyle. I had up until that point always had to live out of a suitcase because I've been I've been doing this this globe trotting for two decades now and for the first part of that it was hard to do it. Not hard to do it. It was a lifestyle I enjoyed. It was it was difficult to take anything with you though. It was very much a throw everything you own into a suitcase and jump on a plane type of lifestyle. But in, around the turn of the 2010s, I I was able to get a job that actually paid for me to move around the world instead of me financing it. So I started accumulating stuff and I was like, oh, I can now buy a bunch of sealed product and I can buy a bunch of things that I can throw into a closet. And so now I have this stuff that I kind of, I'm able to continue to move around with me, but I don't have I don't feel the pain of having to pay a lot of money just to maintain that as it moves through different parts of the world. So that's that's a that's been a help, but I also I've got way too much now. It's also it's kind of a, a double-edged sword now. Because of that, I've just been gone a little too hog wild <laughs> buying everything. So like I said, I've got it's been a while since I've done a count, but I know I have well over three, probably over 400 sealed boxes in my house. And I got a, that's just a, <laughs> the sheer amount of space that takes up in a, in a private family house is it's a little <laughs> bit crazy. And I, I need to, I need to reduce that. I think this, this year is a good um, impetus <laughs> to help me do that. Yeah. Um, it's a, you know, but again, I, I'm not for selling early. Whenever I buy sealed, I always have a three to five year hold window on it. I, I never buy something thinking that I'll, I'll be out of it in less than three years. And rarely do I think that I'll be out of it in less than five. So uh, I think as long as you're doing that, as long as you're really putting that money down going, I don't need this money for five years, you're okay. Now, I, I think when I, when I, I didn't own a home when I started buying sealed, I do now, but I remember back then thinking, well, worst case scenario, I can sell this in a few years and have a large enough down payment for a house, you know? So that's a good way to kind of, to me, it helped me save money to buy a house, which I think is a is a good investment. Pretty much everyone should aspire to have at some point in their life. And it allowed me to put away money for that. I didn't end up needing it because our financial situation and we had family that was able to help out with the down payment and stuff like that. I didn't need to sell my collection, but it was there. And I knew that if I if I absolutely needed it, I could liquidate and get, you know, tens of thousands of dollars and, and be able to put that towards a real estate investment instead of uh, a magic collection investment. Mm-hmm. This is a debate. Uh, you just sparked like a, a thing. I, I'm always having this conversation with people. I know that we grew up or we're familiar with the same area in the PNW. Do you consider homes 
your primary residence an investment or a lifestyle decision? Because <laughs> I feel like there's kind of an argument for both sides. And and not obviously this isn't the, the exact focus of this uh, podcast, but like investing in real estate is obviously if you're doing it in and for the, everyone needs a house at some point. But I feel as though the American culture of buying, you know, buying a home is maybe not the best legitimate financial decision you can make, but certainly one that, you know, everyone needs. So just out of curiosity, as a quick side note, what are your kind of thoughts on that? I've never really thought about the way you phrased that question, but I can tell you kind of what that that made me think about. And that is, I believe that it makes sense for everyone to own a home, but it doesn't make sense for everyone to own investment property. Mm -hmm. Investment property is a different a totally different bag. You've got to deal with, you know, is this making money? Is the rent covering costs that I'm putting into this? And if it wasn't for real estate inflation or real estate appreciation, would it be a worthwhile, you know, thing for me to do? In many cases, it wouldn't for most people that have investment property. They do it, you know, the the, the money that comes in equals about the money that goes out to take care of that property. But when they sell it in five or 10 years down the road, they've made a good five to 10% per year on that huge investment. So it turns out to be a net positive, but it takes a lot of active management. Now, I only have a primary home. I don't have investment property beyond that, but my our, our primary home from time to time, we rent it out. So I am able to help help pay for some of the mortgage on that. I think if you are going to buy with the idea of putting your making your money work for you in the real estate business, I think the first thing is to to focus on where do you live? Where can you not only make money and, and um, where the real estate market is, is good to okay, but where you can get some benefit while you own it. You know, like if you're paying a few thousand dollars a month for rent, that's just <laughs> get out of that as soon as possible. Because if you just buy a house, even if you're paying a few thousand dollars a month for a mortgage on that same place that you're living in, that's, that's money that's going back into your pocket. And there's a whole bunch of tax reasons in the US at least, and probably in most countries that make it far more beneficial for you to own, or at least partially own, because you don't really own it until the mortgage is paid off, but partially own the place that you're living in. Now, there's a number of reasons that won't work out. And there's some situations where it's better to rent than to buy. Like if the market is super hot, like I'm sure an apartment in New York City is, it, it doesn't make sense if you're just gonna live there for one or two years to buy a place, perhaps like it's it's cheaper to rent, but maybe not. I mean, I haven't looked at that market. I'm not big in the real estate investment. Depends on the commute that you're willing to accept. Yeah, yeah. So I know people that commute two hours one way to work <laughs> because they, they want to live in Connecticut or they want to live way out in Long Island. Yeah. New Jersey. It's it, it can be really insane. But then when you hear the, the pricing information behind it, it's like, okay, that makes sense. But that's four hours of your day, dear Lord. Yeah. So and it's it's it, it's all comes down to the market location. I think Pacific Northwest is one of the best real estate markets in terms of having solid jobs. I don't think that anything's going to, you know, there's no not going to be a drastic shift in the next five or 10 years that makes a lot of people lose jobs. And because that that's mainly what drives housing markets is jobs in the area, how well paid those jobs are. So I don't think that the Pacific Northwest is under threat as as much as the rest of the country, as most other places in the country are. That's part of the reason why Seattle is, I don't know if it's number two or three, but it's it's close there with um, San Francisco and New York in terms of just the, the, the growth rate, the price per square meter, how fast it's going and stuff like that. So it's a hot market or it has been in the past. I don't know. I think if you plan on living in Seattle or in the, the greater Seattle area for more than the next three or four years, it it's a no brainer to go buy a place to find a place you can afford. 
to, to, you know, works out with your financial situation, and everything. But again, if you're just like, I don't know where I'm going to be in a year or two. I'm, I'm having fun. I'm doing what I want in life. And, you know, I want to keep my, my options open. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. I didn't buy a house until I was 40. Like, that's when I bought my house. So, you know, if you're if you're early 20s and you're thinking about buying a house, like, great. But it's probably not what most people do. But, you know, it's if you, if you feel good enough in the long-term, you know, stability of your current situation, like, that's it's a, probably a good financial situation or financial decision. The nice thing about Magic is that it's like buying little houses you know that the return on it <laughs> is, is similar to a house like you know you, you can you can easily get 10 percent a year on on magic cards just like in most most housing markets most of the good okay ones you can get 10 percent a year uh five to ten percent i don't know i i haven't look too deeply into it but it's that kind of like i'm just keep putting money away into this and it, it keeps growing so you got to be smart about it i wouldn't say you can just throw money into standard rares and they'll be worth more in five years like they <laughs> you, you got to think about the market a little bit more than than that very superficial top but that's that's part of the reason i like sealed is that it's this slow steady constant gainer that you know putting a hundred dollars into a sealed box is similar to throwing a hundred dollars against your mortgage you know that hundred dollars is going to turn into 110 pretty reliably down the road so that's another way to look at it my greedy question is the keel specific question of the day but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh it's good um, it's good it's good to think about think about your investments in that way is it like the best the, the penultimate penultimate investment for most people is to own their own home right you can't not everyone can do that right now but pretty much anybody can own a, a booster box of magic yeah so skipped over one thing i want to ask in a second but the other kind of hand-in-hand -hand question with that that i think most people would find interesting is like you're saying 2020 is a very interesting year what do you think the traditional equity markets look like over the next six to 12 months right the stock market has completely rebounded and exceeded where it was in february but outside of that, you're obviously like it feels as though the S&P is essentially being carried by the FANG tech companies. But even Google is, I think, missed quarterly earnings for the first time, I think, over the, like the past 15 years or something. But just out of curiosity. I'm not in any ways someone who believes their opinion has strong. Uh, I'm not coming from a, a heavily, heavily, uh, I guess, educated financial stock market position in terms of my advice. My feeling is that the financial markets are not accurately reflecting reality right now. And I mean, my personal, fi I, I have I have lots of finances, my retirement funds are all in the stock market, right? I have lots of finances that deal with financial markets. And personally, I pulled them all. I pulled most of them back in March before most of the crash. And then uh, any new money that I put into my retirement fund, I'm just sending straight into the most solid, you know, treasury bills or something that give me no return, but they're, they're insulated against any kind of crash that happens. So most of my financial assets are like retirement assets are either in, in cash or cash like securities. I, I you know, I, I still have a little bit, a few thousand here and there that's still sitting in some stocks that I think might, might have a chance of going up. But I think in general that the stock market is just waiting for the other, the shoe to drop. You know, I, I know you look at it today and you look at the history and someone just to take a quick look at the charts, they go, wow, that we're past it. Like everything crashed and now we're back and we're we're higher than ever. This is great. I think it's just setting everybody up for a bigger fall because there's it, it doesn't make any kind of financial sense. Like if the market was behaving logically, it would be, you know, it would have crashed hard like it did and stayed at that level for the last few months and, and maybe grown five, 10% back, maybe gone down five or 10% more. 
but I think people gauged correctly the impact of the coronavirus would have on the world. I think they gauged it correctly in March when everything collapsed. And then a bunch of people started saying, well, it looks like we're not going further. Let's put our money back in. And the more people that did that, the more people felt more confident that the markets were okay and put more money in. But I, I think, I, what was the term? I heard a term the other day. Someone called it zombie economy because <laughs> we're all dead, but we don't know it yet. Like <laughs> our, our economy is destroyed, but we don't know it. it it's walking around like it's, like it's alive, but our economy is not alive. The, the, just the sheer number of the, the output of the world in general has collapsed so hard. The things that we are able to do and you know make and produce and the value that we are able to generate is nowhere near what it was 12 months ago. But people seem to think that the stock market shouldn't reflect that. So it feels like you know the, the economy is this dead thing that keeps walking because we keep injecting it with something that that makes it look <laughs> alive it twitches and we go oh it's still alive we're fine guys you know you've got to you've got to at some point account for the enormous amounts of investment that have gone into the economy to keep it where it is right now and when that happens it's not going to look anything like it does today it's going to be terribly underwater but again that's don't take my advice as gospel because <laughs> i'm just a i'm just a pessimist looking at stuff and going well how can i make money in the worst of markets not how can i make money when everyone makes money but how can i make it when people are losing it in general and i always kind of plan for the worst it's it's done me well and i'm i'm very conservative in the ways that i want to put money into things i i, I like a home run as much as anybody else but i like even better knowing that I have all my money safely tucked under my mattress. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm more of that type of investor where I'm like, I, I need to know where it is. I'm safe and sound with it. I'm not going to be a millionaire, but I'm not going to be destitute living under a bridge. <laughs> That's like, a lot of people want to be that millionaire. They want to be, they want to, they want to be, or even now 10 millionaire, you know, a million bucks isn't enough for anybody. I mean, I, I have friends that have a few million dollars in assets and they're still working super hard and worried about their future. And I'm like, dude, you had, you know, if you sold everything, you'd have $4 million in cash that you can live off the interest the rest of your life on that. Like, why are you still freaking out about how hard life is and worrying <laughs> about this and that? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Everyone has their own goals, but I think people need a lot more. They think they need a lot more than they actually need. Hmm. So the last question, I, well, we can <laughs> get into this really quickly. There's two, there's two ones. I, we we talked precast. I thought this was pretty funny, but uh, <laughs> as far as how people store their collections, right? People will right. Usually, it's in an attic, a basement, closet, you know, whatever it is. The higher tier or the way that people protect the kind of premium parts of their collection differ from glass cases to safes. And the one that you had shared that I think many people, many people in like the GP circuit slash vendors use are pelican cases which are basically like indestructible suitcases that you know people will carry high in collectibles or you know weapons you know guns or whatever it is kind of you know, just if you'd be willing to kind of share your experience of you know how you approach protecting the top part of your collectible assets and then also transporting them when you need to sure so so in case you don't know pelican case is a company i'm pretty sure the name is pelican i don't know if it's the brand or the name of the company it's probably it's probably bought by some other company now. It's just the, the name everyone calls it. But these Pelican cases are super ultra durable, lightweight rubber or not rubber, uh, plastic molded cases. 
when you buy them, they're actually filled with foam because the idea is you you open up the case and you cut out the exact shape you need <laughs> for whatever you're storing and you put it inside that foam and then you close it up again. High-end photography equipment is often carried in, like I think that's the only brand they use for people that move cameras and video recording devices and stuff like that around the world is they only use these pelican cases because they're so they're so high quality other other electronic sensitive stuff has moved around in them and i found that they're the best quality for you know protecting what you own making sure that it won't get damaged during shipment it also provides you know a bit of security and then it has all these these kinds of locks on it that you can put in place or you know sometimes some are built in and stuff like that anyways so a pelican case is uh just like a suitcase except that it has these huge like it's super heavy duty you can you know you can't crush it with an elephant you know what i mean like it's <laughs> a super strong case that people constantly use to move stuff, especially internationally, but I'm sure people still use it within the US or domestically. So anyways, so I found myself, uh, I knew that I was going to have to move some of my cards around. And obviously, when you do this, you don't want because the bulk of my collection actually gets packed up by movers, thrown into boxes, thrown into a crate, which is then thrown into a shipping container, put on a boat, and I don't see it for three months. So that's the typical way that most of my possessions move. I just didn't want to do that with, you know, I've got a, a a couple black lotuses. I didn't want to throw them into a shipping container and not see them for three months. So I, I went out and I found myself a Pelican case that was maximized its size to be as large as it can be while still fitting within the standard accepted carry-on luggage dimensions. Got that, filled out all the cards that I that I thought, you know, if, if I lose this, like how sad am I going to be <laughs> type of thing and put <laughs> them into there. And so I'll carry around uh, basically... I think my cutoff is somewhere between two hundred and five hundred dollars. So anything that's worth over two hundred bucks, I, I probably throw in that case and carry it with me. I'm trying to think what else I have. So all my graded things are in there because all the things that that are worth grading are old and valuable. Um, by the way, I looked at your your uh, little screenshot you shared a little while back that showed the different hobbies and who graded how many cards were graded from different years. Oh yeah, yeah. And I noticed that there's thousands of magic cards graded in the last three years that were produced in the last three years. And I thought, who the hell grades a card that they got in the booster <laughs> pack two years ago? That's just, but mm-hmm. anyway, it's a side tangent. So graded stuff, um, high-end things, stuff like that, I'll put into there and I'll carry that with me on the plane. I will walk through you know, the, the metal detectors and stuff like that, they'll always want me to open it and check what's inside because it's it's hard to see what's inside with the number layers of protection in there. Like the x-rays don't get through so well. And they're always suspicious when they see like a, a high-end Pelican case coming through the, the x-ray machine. They're also curious. They're like, oh, what's, what's in here? And so, <laughs> so I'll stand there. I'll be like, you're not going to open this unless it's in front of me. You're not going to, you, you can't take me into a different room. Like I'll keep my eyes on it the whole time because I know I mean, it's got the highest, most valuable parts of my collection in that. And I, I generally use that when I, when I move from country to country or if I'm leaving for a number of months. The other way I store my stuff is in a safe. So getting a very secure safe is important if you're talking about having valuable stuff. I know a lot of people are like, well, a safe costs 500 bucks or a thousand bucks. And, you know, I could buy another, another cradle with that thousand bucks. But if you already have $20,000 in cards or more, like you really don't want that to be lost to a fire, a flood, a random theft where someone knows that 
where you live and knows you have a few high-end cards and just breaks into your house and takes them one day. So safes are the way to keep stuff if you're in one place and Pelican cases are the way to move it from destination to destination when you got to do it. I mean, you could do it in a suitcase, but the problem with a random suitcase is they're easy to get into and out of without you noticing, you know, you slit a hole, you know, someone who's paying attention could easily cut a hole in your suitcase and put their hand in and grab your binder and wander off while you're not looking or they're hard to, 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 the other thing is, you know, they jostle around a lot and you don't want to risk damaging cards that can be, that can be very valuable. So it's also kind of cool to walk around in this, this, uh, you know, very professional high-end case when you're going to <laughs> customs and stuff and people are like, Ooh, watch out. That guy knows, knows what he's doing. <laughs> but yeah look into them if you have large valuables that you need to move from country to country or from even from state to state if you're on a plane do not check your valuables do not put them into checked luggage because i think most people are aware that the airlines won't cover anything over a few hundred bucks and your your renter's insurance and stuff like that won't cover much more than that so don't let your stuff out of your sight if you have to travel with it. Now, I can't do that for sealed stuff. That's the problem. <laughs> my sealed high-end stuff is just too bulky to put into, into checked luggage. So I don't move that. When I do move that, I, I take multiple photographs as the movers are packing it. I will you know, even sign across the, the tape that seals it so that I know when I get the box, if it's been tampered with or opened, take pictures of all that and the process. And that's the only way I can protect myself from that sort of things that can go wrong. No, containers fall off ships all the time there are i think i don't there is a there's a statistic out there that somewhere north of a thousand containers fall into the ocean never to be found again every year (laughs) if your stuff falls off a container ship they're only going to pay you what you can prove is the value in there and that's that's very hard to do especially with collectibles i had a very tragic thing happen to my revised sealed box and that was it was packaged up nice i took all the pictures everything was good when i got it three months later the cardboard box it was in even though it was reinforced triwall cardboard it had been crushed somehow and the box itself was the the plastic shrink wrap was torn a little bit Mm -hmm. the box was crushed and the plastic shrink wrap was torn to the point Mm -hmm. where packs could slide out pretty easily so that was that was super disappointing to me and i i went back and forth with the shipping company with pictures and all sorts of stuff and they refused to give me any money for it they're like well that's just normal normal wear and tear you know your product is still all there and i was like no you destroy the collectability of this because these pack it's no longer a sealed box so that that really saddened me but i've been taking even more precautions ever since then but you know for booster boxes specifically i know a lot of people use acrylic cases now yeah i probably should have done that <laughs> like this was many years ago <laughs> yeah i probably yeah. should have put them into a you know an acrylic hard case but you know this is the the industry adapts and I've seen those sense of going, Oh man, I wish I could have put that in. And that's part of the reason that I've got some, that I, that I sent my, my, um, my data pack off to get graded is that I wanted to make sure that it was protected, you know, through any kind of jostling, moving anything. And that one, I'll, you know, it's small enough. I'll throw it into my Pelican. So if you see me in the airport walking around with the Pelican case, <laughs> stick a syringe full of some knockout drug in my neck and then pick up the case and walk away. And you can you afford real happy. estate in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Chris, would you like to ask our final question? Sure. What is one piece of advice that you would give to an aspiring TCG financier? Are you talking, you said TCG like a trading card game? You mean TCG yes. player? Oh, okay. Someone that was that was looking to move into TCGs, speculative, mm-hmm. I, I'd say find something you're interested in and focus on that. 
I've never seen someone be successful or very rarely where they force themselves to do something that they had no passion about. You know, they're like, I can make a lot of money in this, but I don't have any passion for this particular thing. But I see the value on the table. So I'm going to force myself to do it. As much as I detest things like Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh, those are the, <laughs> the games that you are most attached to, or they, they bring up some kind of nostalgia in you. Focus on those. Like, you know, I, maybe the returns won't be as good or they're more risky or whatever, but definitely definitely anchor yourself in those hobbies, the ones that you have the most passion for. I mean, for me, magic has always had this this long history from, you know, a player to a collector to a speculator to a, all the experiences that it's given me over the years. It, so it's something I'm strongly drawn to. And that's that's why I choose to my largest investment outside of traditional stock market and real estate is is uh, magic. So I'd say find your passion and, and focus on that. In terms of like where this market's going to go and what you should do, don't overextend. I mean, everyone says this to you. I think if you haven't heard it from me, or you hadn't heard it before this, I'd be shocked. But don't don't put everything into one basket. Don't put it all into magic. Don't put it all into Yu-Gi-Oh! or Pokemon. Make sure that you spread your stuff out because that's that's where the worst feel-bads come from. When you were the person that bought, you took your life savings and poured it into into um, pogs and beanie babies back in the 90s. Like, I feel so sad for you. But, you know, that was your dumb decision to, to put all of your stuff in one particular asset class. So spread it out, find something you're passionate for, and um, just enjoy it. If you don't find any enjoyment, like, why are you doing it? You know, anyways, that's, that's, that's very generic stuff. I, I'm sorry, I couldn't come up with something more specific, like buy this hey. card or sell that one <laughs> don't feel bad last last week my advice at the end of it was just please be smart so that looks stellar compared to that well being smart is is, is hard to do <laughs> not everyone can do that i don't know if i can do that most of the time so no, but no, i can always you. i can always be passionate you know i can always do something i enjoy i can agree with that all right awesome. thank you thank you for coming on man thanks for joining us i really sure i hope it. you can find something usable in these two hours of, of <laughs> oh, chatting yeah. I don't feel like I have really much anything to add to the typical person except for telling an interesting story of my history of magic. But um, I don't know. Hopefully you guys find some something interesting to listen to that. And if, if, uh, if there's one thing I can leave, I guess something I should add on to that question you asked is educate yourself. Just constantly educate yourself. It's, it's really important to keep, keep studying this. If you really want to turn into something that, that you can reliably make money from, don't stop educating yourself and listening to point of views don't turn off certain personalities because oh you know they're full of junk and i don't want to listen to that every piece of information is is useful that you can get in some way if you know how to process it so just keep educating yourself and uh take your take your information from a variety of sources don't trust just wolf he's he's got one aspect <laughs> but uh <laughs> don't trust me either i have my own agendas i'm sure but yeah education you can trust me so <laughs> <laughs> you can trust Zekiel as long as he's willing to give you advice. I don't think he'll be so willing to give advice anymore in the future, That's but true. we'll see. It's true. It's true. For the listeners who want to follow you online, uh, where can they do that? Any social there media? There is presence? only one place you can find me, and that is in the band Discord. Like I mentioned earlier, I have no time for things online. <laughs> I mean, I have no time for things in my life. So the only place I really have any presence is inside the band Discord. I do have a TCG player store that's going to be filled very soon with a bunch of a bunch of um, inventory that I've been sending them and that's under MTG Papa as well. Uh, so if you see me there and you want to 
you want to buy some of my overpriced cards, go ahead and go ahead and buy from my store. Um, but I'm mostly targeting people that don't know what they're doing with their money with the prices that I set. So <laughs> if you if it's if it's bought from me, it's probably not a good deal is what I'm saying. <laughs> As I make a mental note to monitor that storefront and how it does. <laughs> And Chris, if people want to find the band Discord, where do they go? So you guys can actually go to find the band Discord. If you just go to mtgband.com, there will be actually a Discord link on that website that will lead you right into the, how we call it the, the Harry Potter muggle corner. We have our Patreon account. If you pay $2 a month, you get access to the Discord and everything we talk about. There are other stages from there, including a lot of a lot of data and a newspaper that I will throw at you, and then uh, more uh, functionality on the website itself. That uh, Coda that we've had on here before will uh, gives you a lot more uh, power and flexibility. But uh, just in general, if you just head over to mtgband.com, you can you can find your gateway into into our band Discord. Awesome. And again, I'm Zakil. You can find me online under Merfolk Magic. You can find Chris, uh, I think, everywhere under Wolf of Tin Street. Sir. And this has been another edition of the Collect and Spec podcast. You can find this on any of your favorite podcast players, as well as YouTube under Merfolk Magic. So thanks, Jim, for coming on. We appreciate the conversation. I hope it was two hours. It was good. (laughs) (laughs) We went deep. (laughs) Thanks for having me on. It was fun. Sweet. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next week. Have a good one.